what I've realized, I talked to a number of doctors and psychologists, part of what's happening is when you're not seen and heard in organizations, when you feel like you have to try so hard, when you, you know, erase parts of yourself or conform to fit in, which is what a lot of these women I interviewed have had to do. um, I think you end up being sick, right? You end up being muted. You end up, your body knows you're not in the right place and your body knows it's not healthy. And we kind of tamp down those messages, right? In order to perform. I mean, I did myself. I, yeah. I loved my job, but it probably wasn't the best place for me from a lifestyle and from a pace perspective. It really started to catch up with me because I traveled all the time, right? I, I worked really long hours and I wasn't feeling well, but I felt like I'm just going to keep doing it. But I think we're in a moment also, I would say, just with COVID, where there's so much more acknowledgement that I think success and health have to be tied together in a very different sort of way that you can't have success if you don't have health. And I don't think we talk about that in corporate spaces or in the workplace, right? It's kind of sacrifice everything to get ahead. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Today, we are talking about women of color redefining power in corporate America with Deepa Prashathaman, the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. And I'm going to introduce more of you, but I just want to say welcome, Deepa. I'm so grateful to you for writing this beautiful book. The cover design is amazing. And Um, deeply healing and important is what I would say about your book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about it. Yeah, there's a whole story behind the cover design and should she have curly hair or straight hair that we can get into. But yes, it was a fascinating process. (laughs) That's actually really interesting. Well, I just want to give people a little bit about your background. So you're the co-founder of N Formation, which provides brave, safe, new space for professional women of color and is a women and public policy program leader in practice at the Harvard Kennedy School. And prior to this, Deepa, you spent more than 20 years at Deloitte and you were the first Indian American woman to make partner in the company's history. And you also, by the way, I watched your TED Talk, which has nearly a million views with Raw Goddess. So congrats on that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we're we're uh, I think we're very close. So yeah, you're we'll very close. We... <laughs> I probably by the time this airs it will be at <laughs> more than a million. Um well, I do think this is an important conversation. I think that any education people get around other people's experiences and this specifically in the workplace is very important and it's easy to gloss over or say oh people are overreacting or whatever if you haven't lived it. Yeah. And we'll dive into some of that part of about the book, but um, let's start with why, why, why now? And, you know, you just mentioned, you know, we just talked about the fact that you were a partner in a major accounting firm and 
you know, what made you leave after, was it 21 years? It was 21 years. Yeah. Um, And I left a year and a half ago, you know, almost two years ago. So it's not like it's eons ago. This is all a a brave new world for me. Um, I left on the early side, just because I think it's so interesting of COVID, meaning I left before the title, the great resignation was even a thing. (laughs) And when I was thinking of leaving, because I I announced I was leaving and then I left, I think I want to say like April, May is when, you know, we started to tell people that I was going to, I was going to exit. It was a big, deal. People were like, why would you leave during a pandemic? It's not the time to leave. And I wasn't clearly going to something. I mean, I knew I wanted to write. I knew I was going to work on women of color and maybe launch this company, but there weren't a lot of details behind all of that. So people really struggled with this idea that I was just leaving this big title to go do, you know, something interesting. You know, I left for a variety of reasons, but it was probably two things coming together that were the biggest reason. One was this growing question around purpose. You know, my background had been politics and policy, right? I went to the Kennedy school. I thought I'd go to Deloitte for a year or two. Yeah. I recruited out of you know HBS and then I ended up there for 21 years because I moved quickly and it was exciting and interesting and all the things that come with consulting. Um, but there was a growing question around purpose for me. And I think the elections, the last few elections had really kind of peaked that for me. Like, am I doing my life's work? I'd always thought I would be in politics. And so I just feel like there was this growing heaviness around the work I was doing, not because it wasn't great and important, but just I don't know. It didn't feel aligned in that sort of really deep sort of way. And then I started to get sick. So it's not some fancy, exciting story. I started to get sick and I um, probably had known I wanted to leave for three years. I had this growing list of symptoms that were mounting. Um, I tell a story in the book that I was at my 14th doctor and we can, we can unpack that when she asked me some life-changing questions. And so it was those things in combination. Um, but it was hard for me to leave because I was a first. I felt like all eyes were on me. Mm-hmm. I felt responsible, you know, not only for my own success or, you know, definition of failure, but also for other women of color after me. I knew that there were a lot of people watching. And so it took me three years to get comfortable with leaving. And my process of leaving just to kind of shape the book and, and the company was I started meeting with women of color because there weren't a lot ahead of me. So I started reaching out to people outside of Deloitte just to figure out where does one go? You know, what, what do you do when you leave after 20 years? Where do I, what do I want to do next? Yeah. Um, it's just hard. Right. And so it started as one-on-one dinners and eventually it ended up turning into about a dozen dinners across the country, 20, 30 women of color each. Um, I thought just stay or go conversations, but those turned into first few only conversations because we would be in these rooms with 20 women. And I thought we'll be there for an hour or two, six, seven, eight hours later, we were still there women I did not know. So just cold called or friends of friends of friends. And we just heard so many shared stories about what it was like to navigate spaces as an only, right? To be in these rooms and have to carry the weight of what that meant. And so um, in some ways, I think those dinners became obviously the fuel to leave and the permission to leave, but also uh, became the basis for the book and and for the company. So long answer, but that's, I mean, it was a combination of things. Well, what do you do with information then with you and Ra? What do you, what is the, yeah, the intent? Yeah. So the focus, was really trying to create the magic of those dinners because we would end the dinners. We would literally be in the parking lots in some cases because we had to get out of this space. And then women would say it was the best thing they'd ever come to. And it wasn't something magical that we were doing. We were just having conversations about what it was like. And we were talking about things like racism, microaggressions, and um, a lot of the isolation, I think, you feel when you you know have the pressure of, of performing with a lot of eyes on you. And so um, it was really initially in an attempt to recreate those dinners and some format. 
Obviously, George Floyd's murder happened. Obviously, COVID happened. And so even the business model and the format talking about race at work really evolved quickly. And so it wasn't necessarily what we envisioned when we started. And so what we do now is it's all online. I don't know that it will always stay there, but it's online and we hold space. And at the top of the month, we have conversations that we drive that are much more research-based or things that we have seen in in the work that we do. Because now I've probably met a few thousand women of color, as has Raw, in in our work. And then at the end of the month, so today, for example, we're going to hold space for 90 minutes with these women to talk about um, safe space. So the top of the month is more like a thought leadership concept. And the end of the month is a safe space conversation. And this week, we're talking about the confirmation hearings and just what it raised for a lot of women of color around having to be better, improve yourself, and smile in the face of microaggressions. And so it's really fascinating. We've done that safe space conversation every month since we've been in existence. And we've had some pretty amazing conversations, like when um, Naomi Osaka stepped away from the French Open. We had a big conversation about taking care of yourself and when is it okay to draw the line. And so I think it's been really helpful, but it's that holding that sort of space. We've also done research. So we did a big research project with Billie Jean King in the fall that got a lot of global attention and led to the TED Talk. Um, and then we're uh, in the early stages of announcing a new initiative around placing women of color on board and boards and in the C-suite. And so that's probably where we'll place a lot of our focus in the next year. And we just did a big symposium where we talked about the research with a number of thought leaders. And so I think it'll be more events driven and, and more really holding conversation and doing research. We say by us for us, because a lot of research is done about us, but it's rarely us doing the research or, or, you know, talking about our own topics. What's interesting is hearing you talk about it. I can feel like the good energy coming from Mm -hmm. you, the passion, the like peace. I don't know, just like a lot of just good energy around this. And I can imagine there's a lot of tears in those forums and a lot of healing that happens. Is it a membership-based It is a membership-based. So people sign up for the year right now. You know, we're in conversations of, do we have the cohort continue or do we want to start, you know, a a yearly sort of process right now? Women, we're only a little bit over a year old. So women have kind of entered and they're staying, you know, when they want to stay. So I think those are some of the things we have to figure out, you know, as as we hopefully emerge from COVID, you know, and there's more interest in in person, we'll have to figure those models out. But for right now, I think it's, we're having conversations that don't get had, you know, you and I briefly had a conversation before we even started this, you know, one of the conversations we had recently was one of our uh, white passing Latina women said, I don't necessarily consider myself a woman of color. I've been here for six months. I'm not so sure, like, you know, where do I go? And so we had a conversation with almost, I want to say close to 70, 80 women on all different kinds of women on what it means to be a woman of color and how do you self-identify and how are our experiences shared and how are they different? I've never been part of a conversation like that. So I think right now it's just holding space for, I think, our own sorting through of identity, our own, you know, challenges, why I wrote the book and even why I launched the company. For me, it's going to be different for Raw, but for me, it was really about not feeling so alone. There's so many things that I think happen to us where I think women of color think it's them. Like we think we have to do more. We have to, you know, the question I get a lot is the lean in concept, like that we have to try harder. We have to do more. And I think a lot of us end up getting exhausted, feeling sick, being traumatized. And part of my work is is wanting to show people the system has dynamics. The system itself, you know, I say the system, corporate America is not a meritocracy and some people's eyes get big, but it's not. It shows up differently for different people. And why is that a bad thing to say? Like, you know, might not have been, you know, I, I think it's intentional, but it may not have been intentional, but, you know, it, it does show up in different ways. And so we need to be able to talk about that if we're going to change it. And so my work is to really show women uh, of color in particular that um, there are differences and you don't have to 
take the burden on when, when things don't go your way, or you don't have to absorb everything that's thrown at you. And I don't know that we've always been told that most of us have been taught to take it and to smile and to be grateful. And that's not working for us. And we need to talk about that. There you go. It isn't working. And you've mentioned <laughs> now twice, cause you had a health issue and you talk about it in your book. So tell yeah. us how many women did you interview? And I believe I read two out of three of the women mm-hmm. that you interviewed had health issues. What's, yeah. what's going on there? Yeah. So I interviewed 500 women for the book, Yes. Um, sat down with 500 for at least an hour each. Um, and what I found is two out of three women that I interviewed were sick. And I don't mean, you know, sick with like a diagnosable illness, like cancer, that is clear. It was more like me. Like it took me 15 doctors to finally get a, a late stage Lyme diagnosis. And I'd probably had it for years. Um, but for these women, it's usually skin rashes, headaches, migraines, uh, stomach problems, heart palpitations or heart issues, uh, adrenal fatigue, chronic illness, chronic fatigue. I mean, that's kind of the list, although there's some permutations to it. Um, and almost all the women that I met had this. And it's interesting because as mm-hmm. I share that with most people, more women will say, I have that or I have that. Um, and they've been dismissed, right? They've been told, you know, it's not that big a deal or this is just what happens. I was told for so long, this is what happens when you get older. But I knew like, <laughs> I, I don't feel like I'm just older, like something drastically is wrong. Yeah. And so what I, I think what, what I've realized, I talked to a number of doctors and psychologists, part of what's happening is when you're not seen and heard in organizations, when you feel like you have to try so hard, when you, you know, erase parts of yourself or conform to fit in, which is what a lot of these women I interviewed have to, had to do, um, I think you end up. Um, being sick, right? You end up being muted. You end up, your body knows you're not in the right place and your body knows it's not healthy. Um, and we kind of tamp down those messages, right? In order to perform. I mean, I did myself. I, yeah. I loved my job, but it probably wasn't the best place for me from a lifestyle and from a pace perspective. It really started to catch up with me because I traveled all the time, right? I, I worked really long hours and I wasn't feeling well, but I felt like I'm just going to keep doing it. But I think we're in a moment also, I would say, just with COVID, where there's so much more acknowledgement that I think success and health have to be tied together in a very different sort of way that you can't have success if you don't have health. And I don't think we talk about that in corporate spaces or in the workplace, right? It's kind of sacrifice everything to get ahead. And who is that really serving? So I think we're just in a moment where a lot of the big questions I was asking myself and I ask in the book, I think are really big questions for everybody. Absolutely. And I think it'll be validating for people to read or people are going to go, oh, wow, I've had like a number of those symptoms and it's validating. And I think just being validated and seen or recognized is also very important. Let's talk to you about power because this is about redefining power. So in your words, from your intention, putting this Mm -hmm. together, what does that mean? Because it wasn't about uh, being visible or reclaiming your voice. It's so much more power is where yeah. it's at. So power. Yeah. Power yeah. for me. So, so I should say, so as I met all these women, what was really interesting is so many, when I would say to them, like, what does power mean to you? Or what does success mean? Or what does leadership mean? Like I had, I had like four or five questions. They would all recoil literally like in their chairs or on zoom when I would say power, because you know, they all had this negative reaction to power. And I think it's a really confusing message. A lot of women, by the way, get not just women of color, but this idea that we should aspire to power in workplaces, yet it's not something we have a natural relationship with. And I think especially as women, these what these women of color were telling me is power is negative, power is bad, power is exploitative, power is power over. Mm-hmm. And I just started questioning, like, why do we all believe that? Why do we all cowering from power as a result of that? And is there a different way? And 
I think there's probably a dozen books that have defined what power is for all of us, right? Like Machiavelli's Prince or the 48 Rules. And we have been taught that's what power is. It's competitive. It's exploitative. It is all about outsmarting the other person. And I don't know that it has to be that way. So that was part of where I started this journey. And I do in the book talk about maybe we need new rules, like for women of color around power. And here are like the first four. But for me personally, I think power is about not accepting what you're told. It's about really coming to coming into your own, coming into alignment, but it's a little bit about being liberated from the things you have to do and that you must do. And so in the book, I talk about the fact that we have been told a lot of delusions about the workplace and about corporate America, about how it should be and how it should work. We're also, as we grow up as, as little black and brown girls or women of color, you know, little girls of color, we get told a lot of messages about what leadership looks like or how we should be and that we should be grateful and work harder and all these messages And I don't think those serve us. So for me, power is a little bit about putting all of that aside and deciding for yourself, what do you want to believe for yourself? What do you think is true? And how do you want to show up in the world? And kind of letting go of the must do and kind of figuring out for yourself what works for you and what makes you feel powerful. You know, what was the most fascinating thing about my, you know, other than the sickness and the illness was I would interview these women and a lot of them were in senior roles. So VP level and higher, some C-suite women. And they would say to me, you know, I thought I'm going to compromise. I'm going to, you know, maybe give up parts of myself. But once I get to the seat, once I get to the seat of power, then I'll do it my way. And some of the women were sitting in the seats of power and not feeling powerful because once they got to the seat, there was no ability to do it differently. There was no ability to be in full voice or to do it that way, or to even show up in ways that were important to them because they've compromised so much climbing that you couldn't all of a sudden pivot who you were. And so I think part of my work is to show, especially women of color, who I think a lot of us don't feel powerful. A lot of us feel like we've compromised or sacrificed, like that you can't wait for later, that you have to figure out what makes you feel powerful as you go. And what's true for me may be different for you, but it's that work to figure out what works for you. Yes. And you're clear about defining power on your own terms. And I used to ask my entrepreneurial guests that came on, you know, what's, how do you define success? Because this is about, Mm -hmm. for this whole podcast is about creating success and life on your terms, not based on anyone else's. But also what I'm taking from this conversation is this, it's really about a coming home to yourself yeah. and owning and embracing, you know, you talk about shedding some of the things we need to shed are the things that are put on us, mm-hmm. you know, by others. And then, you know, even within our own cultures and taking on what trying, you know, staying true to what feels right and what doesn't and being comfortable with letting that go. Would yeah. You, I mean, that yeah, so right? much of what, uh, that's absolutely right. So yeah. much of what I found is that I think as women of color, we come to the table with so much other, I'm just going to call it stuff, right? Responsibility. <laughs> like so many of us who are you know, ch- children of immigrants or have been taught like our family sacrificed so much, right? So many of the black women that I've spoken to just feel like they carry their community. Like there is a real deep sense of all these other things that I think are different as a result of how we got here and, you know, and being first fuse and onlys. And so some of what I'm asking us to do is like take the parts that make sense for us and shed yes. the, so carry forward the ones that do, that make sense for us and talk about our wisdom and like the communities and the cultures we come from, but to shed the things that have been put upon us, but don't really serve us anymore. And to do the work to realize what the difference is. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, some women are going to listen and, you know, I think any woman is going to say, Hey, I've had issues in the workplace. Yep. You know, is this really a women of color issue or is this you know, just a women issue. And I would say, based on my own experience, me before we started recording, I was saying yeah. to you, my ancestry is considered white, but my experience is never because of my ancestry mm-hmm. felt like a white experience. I think that 
when you are a woman of color, there are these microaggressions, these things that are said that you are experiencing that white women are not. Would you say that that is in fact the case? And can you give some examples? Yeah. So I think there's a number of things that are different for women of color in the workplace that we just haven't really always talked about, had permission to talk about, or there hasn't really been space to talk about. And so some of those things are the stereotypes and things we have to overcome. Some of those, and I'll, and I'll unpack all this. Some, some of this is like microaggressions and racism that we face. And I heard stories on a daily basis of what these women and, you know, face. Mine, my issues were less about racism and sex and more about um, age. Cause I was always really young for my tenure. So there was always like every day I was like dealing with, I'm qualified. No, I'm missing your partner. No, I'm this, I'm that. Um, and so for me, it was more age related, but I also think age, especially for women of color, we tend to look younger than we are. I think it's part of it. They call it the Asian curse. Um, so that's always a, a thing. I think the other thing is that we are asked to do a lot more in workplaces of, that, of unpaid labor and culture building and things that we don't talk about enough. So part of what I'm trying to give voice to is there is a different experience for women of color that I think some of it's true for, for white women, but I think there is even more that is that is on top of that for women of color. So in the microaggression or in the stereotype space, I usually share a story, you know, because it's to me one of the striking. There was a woman I interviewed, a black woman in the Midwest. She's at works at a large consumer products company. And she shared with me 40 minutes into the interview, she almost started crying, like breaking down. And it got heavier and heavier as we kept talking because she said to me, Deepa, I knew when I came to this company, I was one of the only, uh, I was the only black woman in my department. She said, I came to find out six months later, I was the only one in my entire company. And she said, I now know that I'm probably the only black person in this town because we live in a, you know, a, a relatively remote, you know, not, not a main city. And so what she was sharing with me is she said, I feel responsible for representing all Black people in a certain way. I'm the only Black person that some of my colleagues have ever met. And so she said, I change how I wear my hair and how I talk and what I eat, what I even talk about. And as she was sharing that with me, she just started crying because she felt such a sense of responsibility and such a weight. And I don't even know that she knew she was fully doing it and what that all meant. And to be clear, she's an, an accountant. She's not an HR person. She's not a culture builder. She's not even a communications person. She's an accountant <laughs> by training. And yes. yet she felt all of that responsibility and for doing it right. Like, and I'm doing air quotes because she felt there was something that was really important for her to get it right and to like put a, put forth a really good impression uh, in her mind, whatever she had made up for herself, because she, I think was fighting stereotypes, right? She, she had taken it upon herself without even realizing it, that she was going to try and counter stereotypes. And so she was going to do all of this extra work to be perfect in a lot of ways. And it was just such a weight for her. And so it's an example, I think, where women of color step into these roles or step into this extra work that I think is very different, that is um, sometimes unexpected. You know, another example that I share is, uh, I think a lot of us mentor. So, you know, white men mentor, you know, people, let's say maybe 10 or 12 a year, you know, white women mentor. And I, I've heard a few dozen, right? Because there's there's less. But for women of color, there's so few of us that some of the women of color I interviewed were, were literally mentoring two and 300 people. Wow. I can't tell you how many messages I get on LinkedIn per week just saying like, can I ask you a quick question about this? I don't know who else to ask, right? Because I'm an Indian woman or I'm going into consulting and no one else in my family has done that. And these are not people I know, right? Like, and I want to be helpful, but I can only, you know, take on so much. And that was true of the women of color as well. So I just think there's a different scale. Nice. I think some of it is fundamentally different. Some of it is just a scale issue because there are all eyes on you. It's a different sense of pressure and a different sense of responsibility. Absolutely. And you talk in the book about self-editing, you know, mm -hmm. just how you're showing up and conforming to 
the work culture and then going home and just, you know, literally like letting your hair down and being yeah. more yourself. And it's interesting because you talked about even with the cover of this book, should yeah. the woman have curly hair or straight hair and, you know, women editing how they show up physically, yeah. you know, I, <clears throat> I've never embraced my curls. I don't know. Yeah. Was that conscious or not? Was that a self-editing yeah. tactic? Maybe. I don't know. There's a lot I need to unpack after having yeah. read your book, but I think yeah. that's the invitation. I, that is the invitation. And so my hair is naturally curly and I, <laughs> you know, I straighten it sometimes. Um, but that was a big debate on the cover, right? Like my, that is my hair. That is like what my hair normally looks like. And there was a big debate on what, you know, quote unquote is more professional, you know, amongst the extended team, like what, what is going to read as a corporate woman, like, and not even maybe more professional. We need to get to that. It's just when you see the cover, what image is it going to evoke? And it was interesting because the curly hair evoked more often less of a corporate person, whereas the straight hair, you know, in a power suit was a corporate person. And at the end of the day, I decided like, given all the conversations we're having with hair, I'm going to do the curly hair and and leave it. But it was like a really interesting exercise, even on the cover. What do we think of when we think of a woman in business or a woman in corporate America? If you Google pictures, like when we initially um, announced information, we were looking for just website pictures and things. There were literally maybe seven pictures of women of color you could go buy off of big sites. And the funny story I tell is uh, you could buy one picture for, for $200. And it was actually a picture of me. Like they, somehow, like I had, there was a Getty image of me what? that you could buy for $200. And I was one of the six. Um, and so I think it's just <laughs> hilarious, right? That I didn't even know that that was true, but it's changed now. But I think two years ago, you know, we wow. didn't have that sensitivity or that understanding that we were even excluding people and things like that, you know? Wow. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you're saying just two years ago and things are changing, but also women of color through this pandemic are one of the biggest demographics that are leaving the workforce. Um, What's going, what do you think is going on there? Like, why is that happening? Yeah. We did research with Fairy Godboss a little bit over a year ago. And the research showed us that two and three women we talked to had planned to leave the workforce within six months. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's changed. I think you're seeing that number in data and stats, right? Moms are leaving the workforce in droves and so are women of color. I think a lot of it has to do with microaggressions and cultures not being friendly. A lot of the women I work with and talk to are leaving to create, you know, their own cultures, their own businesses where they can create new experiences. Yeah. Um, but I also just think part of what we're seeing, and again, this came up from some of the psychologists I, I spoke with, is that we're it's also in a moment where up till now, there's been this sense of as women of color navigating spaces, that's not really happening to you. So there's been denial. We've been told it's not really that bad. Or when we would face a microaggression, there's a little bit of, I mean, I think we have not let ourselves feel the full birth of what was happening because people didn't want us to. I think where we are now is there is acceptance that there is racism in the workplace. If I'd said that two years ago, people would have said that's not true. Like now I think I can say that without having to justify. Maybe it's in different levels in different companies. But I think just even saying that means that now women of color can feel that and they don't have to go through that process of denying it. And as a result of there being acknowledgement and them acknowledging it, that's part of what's happening around the trauma is that women of color are feeling it in their bodies because they're, there's no longer this that's maybe not happening in that compartmentalization. It's actually, no, it's happening and people are telling me it's happening. So it's really happening. That's a whole different level of trauma. And so I think yes, we're making progress. I think it's hard because we're in the acknowledgement phase and there's still like the processing of the pain phase. I also think we're in a moment where companies are wanting to do better. You know, I launched the book on March 1st and I think I want to say I've already spoken to like 60 or 70 companies. It's been a huge interest. 
that would not have happened a year ago or yes, two years ago. Yes, I was going to say the timing is Yeah, perfect. and the yes. topics, like I'm being pretty, you know, I'm not, what I'm sharing with you is how I talk with them and there's no desire to rein it in or talk about it differently. So I want to believe maybe we are, you know, on the precipice. I, I don't want to say we're there because I think a lot of companies are still doing it performatively or don't know what the work is, but I think there's a desire to do better, which is the first step I'm, I'm hopeful of. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Well, one of the pieces of data that you share in the book is that a lot of the women of color were saying that other women of color in the workplace weren't supporting them. I have to say, I've seen this across the board with women in general, yep. like women not supporting women. And I've had other white friends who were at the top, you know, and I said, why aren't you supporting other women? And they see each other as competition. I remember mm-hmm. one saying, well, that's the seat that I'm going for. Mm-hmm. And there's only that one seat. So I can't make room for her. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we solve for this? What's, yeah. what's the way forward with that? Yeah. So the first most surprising piece was that piece that everyone was sick. The second most surprising piece was this, you know, at the end of the interviews, I would say to women, is there anything else you want to share? And you could literally see them drop their eyes almost, you know, they're on Zoom, so I can't see what they're looking at. Almost, I want to say, like, (laughs) look at their shoes because there's shame involved in saying it. And they would say, can you talk about how women don't support women? So most of the women of color said that white women were kind of the worst to them, right? Mm -hmm. And we can talk about why, but then they would also say, but women of color aren't always helpful. So whether it's Indian women to Black women or even Indian women to Indian women. And I do think it comes from this idea of scarcity. Mm-hmm. So when I open the book, I talk about 10 delusions that I think are, you know, that corporate America is based on. And one of them is this idea of a limited pie or a zero-sum game that, you know, the pot, the seats are fixed. And I ask questions like, but who said there were 12 seats at the table or that a corporate table can only have these roles? Like, why have we decided it that way? There's also, I think, this impression that there's one seat for a woman and maybe, maybe now a seat for a woman and a seat for a woman of color. But the idea that there's one seat and that sets us up one to fight for it against each other, right? But also I think this idea that there's only one seat for us is so flawed and so wrong. And so part of what I think has to change is those delusions, those things we've been taught about how it works. And then I think we have to be really conscious in these spaces to not just take that on. So you're absolutely right. I tell a story of a, a, a woman who is a VP in a large beverage company in the United States. And she said to me, she was at a certain level and she felt really comfortable. She knew she was an up and comer. She had been told she was a high, a hyper, you know, high potential woman, all of the things. She got to the VP level. And I, I want to say there was like 12 women at that level. She became the 13th. She said instantly within 24 hours, she felt like she had a target on her back because the assumption amongst those 12 women prior to her getting there was one of them was going to get the next seat, the C-suite. Mm-hmm. No, only one of them was going to be the first in the C-suite. And so it set them all up for being competitive without even a conscious decision. They were going to be competitive. It was just there. And so I kept saying for almost three months, can't you take them to dinner? Can't you just like ask them? Can't you just do something different? And she kept telling me she can't, she can't, she can't. She finally did. And they just had a conversation about like, why why do we feel this way? And I'm not saying everything magically went away, but she said it was a lot better. There was a lot more sense of like, how can we help each other? You know, we've been told there's only one seat, but like that doesn't work for us. And so I think we have to be conscious in these cultures and these atmospheres to really not protect our seat or worry about, you know, if I get it, you're not going to get it, Michelle. And that as a result, like I have to outperform you and do more because it's not only not serving us, but it's not serving me, right? Like I'm exhausting myself to get there. So I think that those are the kinds of things we have to rethink. And I think a lot of women want to, um, but they haven't, again, had permission to like, you know, they think they have to accept that. And I I don't think we have to, I think we can say like, that doesn't work for us anymore. So how are we going to do it differently? Right. There needs to be a new way forward. And I haven't worked in corporate. I worked at a major law firm as head of marketing for 
over a decade, but that was 15 years ago. And what I saw was that women weren't supporting each other in a way that you would hope. And I looked for mentors and I looked for like what my future self could look like. Cause I was initially thinking about going to law school. And I was like, I don't, I don't want this mm-hmm. life. It was clear to me. Yeah. I didn't want their life. So marketing was a great fit, but I wonder, and I think you touch upon this, are the younger generations different than our, I'm Gen X. I think are you Gen X? Yes. Yeah. So yes. us Gen Xers and boomers, you know, maybe we had a different there was a different terrain when we went into the the workplace that maybe, you know, there's an opportunity and maybe these younger women are seeing each other differently. What have you found on that, if anything? Yeah, I think it's really confusing. I don't think it's 100% clear. So I do think that the next generation does see identity in a completely different way. It's not like, you know, here's my, it's just part of who they are. Like, it's just not even, they don't understand labels in the same ways that I think we do or that yes. we have seen. Yes. At the same time, um, they're going into corporate spaces or workplaces, I should say. And the, the many of them told me, I'm going in, I'm going in for a year or two, and then I'm, I'm getting out. Like, I'm just right. getting the skills and then I'm going to go <laughs> do my own thing. So it's a, it's much more of an extractive sort of mentality. Um, I think the challenge is they want to believe it's not going to happen to them. And I talk to women at all levels. What what I find in the middle level is there's an acceptance it is happening to me because the structure is still around you. So I think they are doing some things differently. Like, you know, I tell a story in the book where there's a large group of women of color at a company that's for sharing pay information in a very different way. So they put all their information in a spreadsheet, like the Google stories that we've heard, but this is, this is not Google. And so I think there's practices like that where the, where younger women than, than you and I are like doing some creative things to like help each other yeah. at the same time. I think the system still operates in the way the system operates. So it's hard to constantly not be sucked into some of those processes and procedures. So I think it's going to take both. I think it's going to take an awareness from them, but I also think it's going to take them staying to change the culture if we're really going to change it. And um, some of it's still there. Like, you know, I tell a story in the book where there was a young woman just entered uh, the workforce during COVID. And she was saying, I'm really, she thought it was a silly question, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a really great example. She said, I'm really struggling because I want to wear red lipstick on Zoom calls and things. I've never met my team. She's, I want to say maybe 22, never met her team, like in a corporate environment. She's only worked virtually. And she said, well, people take me seriously. Like if I wear red lipstick, is that something I should like conform because no one else does it? Or that makes Mm -hmm. me feel powerful. And yes, it's maybe a simple question, but it's that whole question of like, what do you, what is the norm of the company? Like, what do I, am I willing to compromise? And if that's her kind of work pain or that makes her feel really comfortable, right? That's what she called it. Um, I feel like she should do it because it's going to make her more comfortable and make her feel, you know, more in her power. But those are the kinds of things where I don't think it's clear, you know, and we don't talk about, you know, so how much do you lean in and how much do you, you know, push out and kind of do what makes you feel, you know, your strongest. I think for me, it's a lot of agency questions, right? I think there's a lot that happens around us where we lose power without being even conscious of it. And what my work is about is helping women of color, helping women realize that we have more agency than I think we realize. So that red lipstick question is a real question and she gets to decide. And yes, there may be ramifications, but if that's an important decision and something she thinks is really core to her identity or what makes her feel good, then I don't think she's a compromise on that, but she's going to have to figure that out. Right. And you said it made her feel powerful and that's kind Mm of what she needs to try on and play around with. Exactly. In the actually the very first chapter with the delusions, you said um, something that I loved. You said um, the deeper paradox is that the more we try to fit in, the more disempowered we become. And the more disempowered we become, the less we can feel true belonging. 
This is kind of parallels to life too, though, right? Mm -hmm. Not just work, but so powerful. And then you said, by working to fit into existing power structures and establishments, we lose a lot, a lot of what makes us who we are. Many of us feel empty, hollow, and diminished. Is it because women, I'm just wondering, like, what, what is the ideal scenario going to look like? Yeah. You know, if you, if you could, cause work is changing, COVID just yeah. shook everything up. Right. I mean, yep. how we work, how, you know, and millennials and their four-year, you know, or yep. one-year jobs here and there yep. in your mind or based on what you're, you know, what would an ideal workspace feel like? What would it look like? Yeah. You know, I think, so I think one, what I tell women of color to figure out is like, what are the, cause I don't think it's hundreds of things. I think like, what are the six or 12 non-negotiable things that are really important to you and write them down on a list and be really clear about it. Be really intentional. Yes. Um, and I don't think we go through that process of figuring out for me, like I'm not willing to compromise on the red lipstick or how I wore in my hair or, you know, I, like a lot of, it could even be like complicated, but simple things. Like, so a lot of vegans or a lot of some of the Muslim women I spoke with, right. It's alcohol at events, or it's, you know, like I'm constantly at steak dinners. Cause that's what my company does. And I'm a vegan. Like it's, you know, at one point are you going to stop and say like, we need a different restaurant because this isn't working for me versus I'm going to have a salad, you know, like it, that sort of, that sort of conversation. And for some women, these are really big questions and they're bigger than just red lipstick, their religious, you know, choices or their lifestyle choices. And so mm-hmm. I think part of it is like writing for yourself, like what is your list and realizing it's not hundreds. I think many of us think it's hundreds of things. Like it's bringing my whole self to work. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, do the work to know like what you're not willing to compromise on and do not give up on those things. As far as an ideal workplace, it's a harder question because I think we're still figuring it out, you know, and I think, especially in a hybrid model, there's a lot of women of color I know who don't want to go back to the office and don't plan to because they don't find it a place of belonging and they find it really challenging. That brings its own set of issues on how they're going to be evaluated and judged and all those things. But I was watching... um, Bridgerton, Bridgerton over the oh, weekend, yeah, I love right? It. And so I was I. What a coincidence! Yeah. Oh, okay. like so I don't know. Like, no, I'm just yeah. Teasing a no, everybody. So good. Right? It yes. was it was number one on Netflix. But the interesting thing I was contemplating as I was watching and seeing two Indian women, right, as the main characters, which I've never seen in my life before, which is yes. fascinating. But it was really interesting to see because they don't talk about race, right? Like they do do like the the um, turmeric. Uh, tradition where they're putting turmeric on and they they show pictures of chai. Like there are aspects of the culture, but they never talk about race or difference in that sort of way. And I was wondering, like, is that what that like, is that really what we're aiming for? Are we were aiming for workplaces where it's so seamless, where people were physically different, but it was never talked about or never acknowledged. Like there was something of their tradition that was ingrained in like how they acted, but it was never like constantly talked about, like we talk about mm-hmm. it, at least in America. And I don't know. I don't like, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head wrapped around. Like, is that an example of what the workplace should look like? Or is that like denying some of the reality? Cause I think it's very different for me to walk around, you know, you know, in a mall or walk around in a supermarket, like people do see my skin color. There are judgments they make about that and my power as a result of that. <laughs> right. Um, so I think it, it's, I, so that's part of where I am. Like I'm trying to figure out, is that what I'm really trying to aspire to where we know, you know, our history and our difference and we bring it in when we want, but there's not a constant definition by which we kind of categorize people or is it more than that? So I don't know. I I just found myself asking those questions this this weekend as I was watching. I love what you just said, because truly this is an invitation, your book, the work you're doing, Mm -hmm. and it isn't set in stone. There is an opportunity. And as each woman embodies her power and really takes ownership of what is, you know, her, her list of must haves Mm -hmm. or cannot stand I think that's what's going to start shaping the cultures of these organizations and education, the education through the work you're doing, 
um, through your speaking to these companies. I think all of that is so, so important to create awareness just so people have a sense like, wait, oh yeah, like this is my reality, but I didn't realize yours was really so different. Yeah. And like I you said, two, two years ago, nobody would, could have these conversations as yeah. easily. So it's, it's a good time. Um, what makes you hopeful about the future of work? For women yeah, of color. I, I'm actually really hopeful. So, you know, there's a lot of heaviness in the book. I'm not going to lie about that, but it's also really optimistic because I met such amazing women, who, women who had broken through, who had found their voice, found their power, who were changing paradigms, who were creating their own companies, um, women who were staying in organizations and in full voice, like what they were not going to accept. And so I'm seeing women of color in this moment really step into their power and step into new seats and step into what's possible. I think um, we need to support each other as we do that. You know, a lot of my book is about the power of me and the power of we and finding community to your point. Cause I think some of these things we, we can do whatever we want, right. But we need yes. the structures to change yes. and we need to work together. <laughs> so that's the part that excites me is I think more than ever, there is a coming together and there is a desire to work together and there is a desire to be in community and a desire to make change. Like I just, I think we're in a moment to your point as a result of the last couple of years where if we were ever going to change anything, it's now. And my work is not just about women of color. My work is about making work work for all people. But if I believe if I can make it work for women of color, it's going to work for more people. It's, it's just by default because we tend to be, you know, the ones that have been sidelined for so long. Absolutely. Um, I loved this conversation. I want people to go buy your book, your book, the first, the few, the only, um, and just open your mind and just learn, learn and, and, yeah. and read. And also if you're a woman of color, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you is what advice would you give to a woman who is struggling to find her power? I think this book is a great place, but is there anything else that you'd say? Yeah, I think there's a lot of great resources out there. And there's a lot of people that are doing amazing work. The Ruchika Tulshian just had a book come out on women of color. Minda Hartz it? does who was the Ruchika Tulshian. Okay. Yes. Um, another one is Minda Hartz has done a, done, you know, the memo and is doing more work on women of color and trauma. So I think there's amazing resources out there. I'd say find community, whether it's a church group, whether it's like a family friend group, whether it's a, you know, it's an ERG at work or come to information, but find spaces where you can have these conversations. So much of what I'm talking about is freeing yourself. And the only way you can free yourself is if you actually talk about the negative experiences and let them go, you know, have them witness, kind of process them. And so finding spaces to do that. I'd also say, you know, last thing is I was really surprised. It's been a lot of white male leaders who've picked up the book so far and a lot of white readers who've picked it up wanting to understand. So that also makes me optimistic. Like I wrote it for women of color thinking naively only women of color are going to read it, but it's been a lot of white readers who maybe are open to the idea that it is different, but we don't understand. Like we want to, you know, we, we agree with you, but I, I don't have the words or the stories. And so it's been really, um, I'm surprised in a good sort of way, how many people have been open to, you know, the stories and wanting to understand and, and can really resonate and want to do better. So. I love that. That makes me hopeful. That's amazing. Yes, um, yes. Deepa, where can people learn more about you? Pick up a copy of the book. What, where do you like to connect and hang yeah, out? Yeah. So I would say my website has all the information about the book and speaking and information. So Deepa Peru, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U.com, or I'm most active on LinkedIn. So I post a lot there. And that's another great place. Okay. And all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com. So people can head on over and I'll have all the links that we reference, especially um, information and a link to your book, Deepa. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today to share and for also stepping into your power. Mm-hmm. It's such a, you're, you're leading by example. I'll just mm-hmm. say, you know, you had talked about in the book that there's that expression, if you can see it, you can be it. And for a long time, what was the quote that you had above your desk? 
Yeah, you don't need to see it to be it because I needed to convince myself I could be it without having having it in front of me. So, so thank you for thank you for modeling what is possible. Thank you, thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.